We are in week seven, I believe, of this series called The Whole Story. We're tracing the storyline of the scriptures in order to see that it's not a fragmented collection of ancient writings, but it is a unified whole. And it tells one mega story. And the mega story that the scriptures tell is the story of the Messiah, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. We've got study guides on a table over here to the left of the room, um, and you're welcome to just get up at any point if you would like one of those and grab one. It's just got some blank pages on it to collect notes and to orient you to the scriptures that we've been in and also to work kind of as a map and show you where, we, uh, where we're headed to. So one of the devices, one of the literary features that we're using in this study guide is something called the story so far. And the story so far is a a story that is building, showing how Jesus is the, the hero of our scriptures. And it goes like this. This is the ground that we've covered. God created a kingdom, and he is the king. And he created human beings in his image to represent him. Adam and Eve were these human beings that he created, our first parents, and they rejected the call, which led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, and he would do so. God promised to do that through the seed of the woman or the offspring of Eve. And this offspring will also become the seed of Abraham. So we're tracing a kind of family lineage through the scriptures. And through Abraham's family, and specifically One of his great-grandsons, Judah's royal seed, the covenant blessings would come to the world. Now, here's where we're going this morning. Because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly their need for a substitute. So that's where we're focusing our attention, that last sentence in the story so far. So if you would, would you turn in your Bibles to the very beginning? You've got the first book there, Genesis. There's some black Bibles around the room. Grab those too. I want you to interact with the text on your app or on a, with the Bible in front of you. The second book of the Bible is Exodus. And I want you to go to Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. This is going to be like an anchor text. This is where we're anchoring ourselves this morning but I'm going to cover a lot more ground than this. This is what Exodus 12:23 says, "For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, so you've got two doorposts and the lintel is the crossbeam over the top, the Lord will pass over that door when he sees the blood and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you." This is God's word. Now, isolated, that text just plucked up out of its context. It's hard for us to understand uh, where that falls in the storyline. And so what I want to do is I want to connect the dots now from last week and the week before, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who was renamed Israel. He has 12 sons. They become the tribes of Israel. And last week, we highlighted two of these sons. And the two sons that we highlighted last week were a guy named Joseph and a guy named Judah. Judah doesn't get a lot of airtime, but he's actually the royal line. Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah. And then we highlighted Joseph as well, who got a lot of airtime in Genesis. And God used Joseph significantly to preserve the people of Israel. His brothers sold him off into slavery. He goes down into Egypt as a slave by uh, interpreting dreams. He comes to the attention of the ruler, the king of Egypt, a guy named Pharaoh. And 
and he ascends in Pharaoh's government to a place of prominence. And then his brothers come down because there's a famine and they're out of food. But Joseph has um, engineered this great storage of food and of grain over the course of years to provide for all of the surrounding nations during this time of famine. And so we pick up in Exodus chapter 1 where this story picks up or where we left off actually last week. So Exodus chapter 1, now go back to Exodus chapter 1, and I'm going to go quick. I'm going to fly through this. So I want you to dig in. That's our work. It's, it's our work as individuals to dig into the text, and I'm going to try to orient us to this story and to what's going on here. This is what Exodus 1.1, this is how it starts. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And then the narrator, the author here, names all of the tribes of Israel. And then he says in verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. So there's 70 people in the family. And Joseph, their brother, was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel They were fruitful, and they increased greatly, and they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. If you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, this is going to be reminiscent of some language that God gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. That's exactly what the Israelites are doing now that they're down in Egypt. They're filling the land. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel, they're too many, they're too mighty. Let's deal shrewdly with them, because if they multiply and if war breaks out, they are going to join up with our enemies, they're going to fight against us, and they're going to escape from the land, and it's going to decimate us economically. That's the implication. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh these store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So the serpent here through Pharaoh and the Egyptians is trying to squash, exterminate the seed. But the people of Israel continue to multiply. Verse 13 of Exodus 1 So they, the the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Notice the descriptors there. This goes on for a period of four centuries, longer than the United States has been a nation. And they're living and they're increasing and they're increasing and they're increasing in Egypt and still Egypt is oppressing them and enslaving them and building their empire on the backs of these Israelites. Fast forward about 350 years from their initial coming down into Egypt and this Pharaoh, this new um, king of Egypt, he commanded that all of the Hebrew boys uh, be killed. All of the newborn boys under about two years old be exterminated. It's a tragic decree, and it was in order to stop the multiplication of these Israelites that were getting out of control. And around this time, a guy named Moses was born, and his mom and his sister hatched a plan to preserve his life. And so they put him in this basket, and they sent him out among uh, some reeds in this slow-moving water where they knew that Pharaoh's daughter would come and bathe and where her maidservants would be. And one of these maidservants, they found Moses. And and he eventually becomes a member. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter has compassion on Moses, says, this is one of those Hebrew 
boys and brings him into her house and raises her as an Egyptian. And so he grows up and is educated as an Egyptian, but he's in actually proximity to his mom and his sister too. But he, so he grows up as an Egyptian, but knowing that he's Hebrew. And there's this interesting story in, in the early pages of Exodus where Moses, as an adult, he goes out uh, to, to just, he, he just goes out into public and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew ruthlessly. And Moses intervenes and he ends up killing this Egyptian and burying his body in the sand. And he didn't think anybody knew about it. And then the next day, the story tells us that he comes out and he sees two Hebrews going at it. And Moses doesn't intervene with hands. In their case, he intervenes with words. But they kind of turn on him and taunt him and say, what, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And so at that moment, Moses knew that this murder of the Egyptian had become known and it was public. And come to find out, the Exodus tells us that Pharaoh found out about this and pursued Moses. And so Moses fled he fled to the Arabian Peninsula, a place called Midian. And once there, Moses met, this, he's about 40 years old or so. He meets a woman named Zipporah, and he and his wife, Zipporah, they began to raise a family. And then there's this really interesting occurrence in Exodus chapter 2, where, God, uh, where, where we just learn that God knows the plight and the struggle of the Israelites. Look at this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel, they groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. They, their cry for rescue for slavery, it came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. Look at these names with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This is cluing us in that this is a continuation of the story in Genesis. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The serpent was trying to extinguish the Hebrews, but God saw them, he heard them, he remembered them, and his covenant, and he knew. Do you ever feel like he doesn't see you? Do you ever feel like he doesn't hear you? In your pain, you ever feel like he doesn't remember you? You just feel like he doesn't know. He's distant. This ancient text is orienting us to the heart of God. He sees and he hears and he remembers you and he knows. Moving on into Exodus chapter 3, God calls Moses into his service. Moses, Moses had become a shepherd, and he's working for his father-in-law, a guy named Jethro. And Moses has got all of the, the livestock out in this field into the, in the wilderness, and he's near a mountain called Horeb or Sinai. And the text in Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Okay, stop. That seems weird. Moses looks, and behold, the bush was burning, but it wasn't consumed. This is going to catch your eye. This is going to catch our eye. This is going to catch Moses' eye. Moses says, I'm going to check this out. I'm going to turn aside, see this great sight, why the bush isn't burned. And when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. He said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Who's talking? Then God said to him, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. You're in the presence of God. 
in this moment. And then God immediately says, he introduces himself, he names himself. He says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, your father, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And in this moment, Moses had a sense of who he was in the presence of and who he was dealing with. And it says that he hid his face. He was afraid. He was filled with fear. And then the Lord says some profoundly comforting words. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, meaning a land good for agriculture and for livestock. It's the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This is all language that God has already used in his promise to Abraham and his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17. So 400 years later, God is now reaffirming the covenant that he has made, and it has not changed. And behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses has fled Pharaoh. He's fled for his life, and now God is telling him that he is going to send him into this Egyptian king's presence to free a great nation of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Imagine your lack of faith in that moment. Imagine the terror that we would feel in that moment, encountering God, but also knowing the humanity that you, that you and I are supposed to go to and confront and the impossibility of just circumstantially, of what this might look like. And so God shores Moses up here. He reveals his, God reveals his identity to Moses, but he also reveals his purpose to Moses. I told you we were going to go fast. We are. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What am I going to say? Like, how am I even going to start God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. God goes on to say, this is my name forever, and this is, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob, this is how I am to be remembered forever throughout all generations. God commands Moses at this point in verse 16 of chapter 3, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. I promise that I'll bring you to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. It's a land filled and flowing with milk and honey. And then look at this in 3.18. And they will listen to your voice. God is promising. He's comforting Moses here. They'll listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and will say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. 
And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. That's a long journey. It's a long ways out. It's a big test. God says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless, you are, unless he, rather, is compelled by a mighty hand. He's not going to let you go unless he sees something real powerful that shakes him. God says, so I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all of the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he's going to let you go. And I will give this people favor inside of the Egyptians. And when you go, you're not going to go empty, Israel. You're not going to go in poverty. You're not going to go with just the clothes on your backs. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. It's an amazing promise, all of it yet to be realized by Moses. He's just got to take God at his word. But God has also foretold this way back when in Genesis to Abraham. It's part of his covenant to Abraham. I believe in Genesis 17, he actually says, for 400 years, my people are going to be enslaved, Abraham. Your, these generations that come after you, they're going to be enslaved. And now we're in the moment with Moses here, at the moment, at this precipice of them being freed from the Egyptian rule. And so Moses does as God tells him. He gives, Moses, or he gives Pharaoh signs and plagues, but Pharaoh's heart remains hard and unbelieving. And this hardness of heart is going to be this interchange. We're going to see it over and over and over in the following chapters of Pharaoh hardening his heart and God saying he will, he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we have this mix of, of both here, God's providence in the moment, but also human will setting itself against God. Moses comes and gives these amazing plagues that actually attack the things, the gods of the Egyptians. So each of these plagues is some sort of an affront or an attack on Egyptian gods here. The very first thing that Moses comes and does before Pharaoh is he turns the Nile River, this holy river of theirs, into blood. Kills the fish, kills the, the life in this river, and, and Pharaoh is amazed and says he's going to let... God's people go, but then he changes his mind and he doesn't. And then Moses comes with a deluge of frogs. And then after that, gnats. And then flies over this entire land. And then he kills uh, Egyptian livestock, afflicts people with painful boils. Destructive hail comes and uh, destroys all of the crops. A deluge of locusts comes, and then darkness over the whole land for three days. That's the ninth plague. They worship the sun. So God blots out the sun and creates darkness over the land. And the whole time, Pharaoh, it's this push and pull of Pharaoh saying, okay, 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 I relent. And Pharaoh's got his, you know, his uh, miracle workers around him. They're trying to copy these different signs, but the kind of power that Moses has alongside him, the power of Yahweh, the God of Israel, is far more superior, is far superior to that of, of Pharaoh. And then we come to this moment of a tenth plague where Pharaoh has still not let these people go. <clears throat> and God says to Abraham in Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 through 10, about midnight, I'm going to go out into the midst of Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. So from the greatest to the least and the firstborn of all cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. That's the point that God is trying to make here. There's a distinction between his covenant people and those of Egypt. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. Says that Pharaoh went out from, or Moses went out from Pharaoh here in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's not gonna listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This interchange of these 10 plagues. They took somewhere between a month and a year. Kind of some um, people have done some math around how long likely it was, and it it would be as long as five months. It took this push and pull, this going into Pharaoh and these plagues occurring. This is a very long time of suffering here. And God prepares Moses in this moment and Israel for the exodus. This exodus, exodus is a word that means out of, deliverance out of. And so God is now preparing Moses and the Israelites, the Hebrews, for this exodus. And he says this, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man is supposed to take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for their, that household. This lamb shall be without blemish, it shall be a year old, And you can take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep this. So on the 10th day, you go and get it, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their their lambs at twilight. That is when the sun goes down. Verse seven, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. So he gives them some instructions on how they are to eat it. They shall let none of this lamb remain until morning. So if they cannot eat it all, they need to burn it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And here is how God wanted the Israelites to partake of this Passover lamb. With their sandals on, with their belts on, with their clothes on, their staff ready for some quick travel. You shall eat it in haste, the Lord says. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. That's the context of the verse that we're in this morning. So Passover, this moment of Passover, it becomes this moment of power in the psyche in the memory 
of Israel. It becomes a, a moment of power right then and there in real time, but it also will become a memorial of remembrance for the Israelites as well, where God's power will be remembered forever and ever. This Passover was a moment where God's power was experienced, not just in royal courts in this confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, but in the presence of everybody in Israel and everybody in Egypt too. And so what Passover became was the widest experience of God's reality and glory since the Tower of Babel. And before that, since the flood of Noah, God does not hide himself. He does not stay hidden. If we're willing, we can see him at work in our everyday lives too. In this night, when the Hebrews, they leave on this exodus, they, it's wild to me. They shake the, the Egyptians down. Literally, they shake them down. They plunder the nation of their riches as they go. And the text tells us that Pharaoh hardens his heart yet again, even as Israel is on their way. Some people say 600,000 people. Some estimates are as many as 2 million Think about like just the thunder of these people leaving. Again, God displays his glory and he powerfully delivers Israel from the Egyptians' hands. Here's the story of Passover in Exodus 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down. So at twilight, they were supposed to partake in this meal, slay the lamb and cook the lamb and eat the lamb and think about the anticipation. Think about the quiet. Think about the murmuring. Think about the moment. Think about the adrenaline. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So from greatest to least, Firstborns are struck down. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, quote, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then Moses summons, or rather Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron, his brother by night, and said, up, Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks, take your herds as you have said. Be gone and bless me also, he says in this moment. Like, pray for me. This is bad. It really was. The Egyptians were urgent with the people and sent them out of the land in haste, for they said, we're all going to die. We shall all be dead. So Passover is this solemn moment where God expresses his power and we feel the flex of his might in this moment. Part of God's command to Moses and Aaron was not that it would just be a one-time moment, but that Passover would also be a memorial of remembrance, an annual feast of rehearsing God's power, but also rehearsing their privilege as his covenant people. So Moses would say to the people, this is the Lord told him to say this, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. And then again in Deuteronomy chapter 16, um, where it's, Deuteronomy means second law, it means it's, it's repeated a second time. Um, it says this, observe the month of Abib, that's uh, the Hebrew month there, late March, early April, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in that month the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. 
And so Passover was, was supposed to be a sacred date on the calendar. That's what Passover was to be. After that initial Passover, now it's going to be a memorial of remembrance. So for those of you who are married, is your anniversary an important date? It is. Now, guys, if you forget that date, does your wife have a right to be upset? She does. Because it's a sacred date on the calendar. But Passover... So Passover became a sacred date like that for the entire nation of Israel, celebrating their freedom. But Passover was not just a day on the calendar. Passover was a week on the calendar. And the command that God gave to the people of Israel was that they, would to, they were to feast, and they were to remember, and they were to celebrate. So it comes with some weight, but it also comes with much celebration because the point of Passover is the Lord's deliverance of the Hebrews from the nation of Egypt. God comes through for his people. And what Passover does is it introduces us to the theme of substitution. Now, Israelites or, or Jews have been celebrating Passover for 1,300 years. Every single year, for 1,300 years, at the point when Jesus arrives on the scene. Jesus keeps Passover, and Jews have continued to celebrate Passover. Those who reject Christ as the, Jesus as the Messiah, they continue to celebrate Passover, looking for God's deliverance, which means that they have been keeping this annual feast for 3,300 years. There is no other religious feast or memorial that dates with that kind of consistency than the Jews. They are very serious about keeping God's law. Now, for, for us, this, and for them, but we, we understand that our substitution has been realized. Substitution is a theme in biblical theology. And what substitution theologically means is that a life is taken in order to spare the life of another. It, it, it's the idea of a blameless life being spent or given in order to cover one who has guilt. And so in the case of the Egyptians, there in this moment with Moses here, there's nobody who will, who can be a substitute for them because of their hardness of heart. They have rejected God outright, and therefore their lives, their guilt, their blood is on their own hands. But in the case of the Hebrews, though they too have sinned against God, they will be provided a substitute. So the issue isn't who is innocent and who is guilty. The issue is who is being covered in this moment. Hebrews are receiving mercy while the Egyptians are receiving judgment. But God is providing a substitute for the Hebrews. So in this case, the blood of these lambs will be the substitute for the firstborn children of the Hebrews. Now, just a moment ago, I said Hebrews are receiving mercy while the Egyptians are receiving judgment. Why? Because God has made covenant with the Hebrews. That is Abraham's family. He's made a covenant with Abraham, and it is not a covenant that he has made with the Egyptians or with any other group of people. And so I'm only glancing at it in this moment, but what we're seeing is the doctrine of election in play here. 
where God has a divine right to choose, some for mercy and others to pass over and to allow the judgment that is due them to stand. Two weeks ago, we explored uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And in this covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, God promised not to abandon Abraham's family. He made a covenant with him, even if Abraham and his family repeatedly fail and break covenant with God. Even if Abraham does not come through on his end of the promise, God would come through on his end of the promise. And in this vision that Abraham had of this smoking fire pot and this this, um, this bowl of fire or pot of fire here. These are the only two pieces that move between these cut up animals. It's a way, it's an ancient way of making a covenant. And it was signifying that God himself was the one who would keep both ends of the bargain. In that moment, Abraham was sleeping. And so the covenant that God made with Abraham was a covenant of grace. There is grace, there is undeserved merit, there is undeserved favor all over the Old Testament. And so in this moment of Passover, we're seeing substitution here in play. But we've already seen substitution in play as well. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, first blood. This is a moment when Adam and Eve had sinned against God. He was expelling them from the garden. They were guilty. They were, they were ashamed of being naked with one another. And so they covered themselves with fig leaves. And at this moment where God was sending them out of his presence in the garden, he slaughtered, he killed, he took the lives of animals and clothed Adam and Eve with skins. It's the first foreshadowing here of substitutionary atonement. But again, in the story of Abraham and Isaac, I didn't tell this a few weeks ago, uh, just trying to keep it high level, but uh, at one point God came to Abraham and said, hey, your son of the promise you've waited 25 years to have, give him back in sacrifice. And Abraham heard God speak and obeyed him and took his son Isaac up a mountain to sacrifice him. And at the last minute, God rescued Isaac and said, Abraham, don't do it. I know that you love me. You've not withheld your only son. And so God provided him a ram that was caught by its, its horns in, in briars or in thorns. So we've seen this idea of substitution, and now we're seeing it again developing even more fully in Passover. And so what substitution is, is it's a theme in development in biblical theology, in the story of the scriptures, in the biblical record. So this is a story that is developing. But we need to know this about substitution. The blood shed for humans, it's from animals. It's a temporary sacrifice. It's an inadequate sacrifice. It covers their sin for a time, but it does not cover their sin for all time. A greater sacrifice is coming, starting to clue the readers in that we need more because we keep sacrificing these animals and we get up to even and then we sink back again and get up to even like we do not, we're never in net positive status. And so through Moses, God will continue to introduce the law and Moses will introduce it to Israel and more kinds of sacrifices will be introduced and more laws will be introduced in order to govern Israel and to set them apart from the nations 
and also to give them a sense of God's holiness and what it is that he requires. And so God, with the law, is um, proving with Israel in an outward way through the ceremonial sacrifices, through the dietary uh, laws, and through the moral law, what's already true of them. He's setting them apart from the nations around them. So this is what's true of Israel in this moment. Hang with me. We'll be done here in just a, a few minutes. Israel is a chosen race. They're a royal priesthood. They're mediators between God and the nations around them. They're a holy nation. They're a people for his own possession, that they might proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of the dark slavery of Egypt and into the freedom and the marvelous light of a restored relationship with God. God is going to do this more fully through Jesus Christ and through the church. But at this moment in time, they are being marked and set apart as a people holy, a nation now that is holy to the Lord. And so the backbone of this sacrificial system that God gives to Israel is, uh, rather the, the backbone of the law is the sacrificial system. But what I just touched on a moment ago is that the, the sacrificial system could not take care of a person's sins in totality. It couldn't ultimately and finally deal with them. So every single sin requires a sacrifice, whether it be grain or whether it be the life of an animal from birds all the way up to larger animals like bulls and goats or Passover lambs. And so every single year is a memorial, Passover lambs in the plural, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them would be killed every year over and over to cover the sins of the people. And here is where we get to some resolution that is pointing to Jesus this morning. In the words of Chris Bruno, he says this, the message that's sent by every bull and every goat sacrificed was, you deserve this. This should be your blood. This should be our blood. The fact that a person is offering a sacrifice in the first place, it's actually an admission of that fact. If we're offering a sacrifice, it's an admission that something is wrong and we need coverage. And so Chris Bruno goes on to write, he says, the entire Mosaic covenant, that's the covenant now that's come through the law by Moses, it points forward to the need for a greater sacrifice. And what it points us to is the promised seed or the offspring of the woman. So as this newly constituted nation of Israel as they left Sinai in this desert where they wandered, wandered for 40 years because of their ongoing sin, time and time again, they succumbed to temptations in the wilderness. But God in his grace, he eventually led them into the promised land. And God gave Israel victory over the nations that were occupying the land so that Moses' successor, a guy named Joshua, that's who would come after him, could eventually tell the Israelites, not one word has failed of all of the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. And at this point in the story, it might seem that God was finally restoring those garden-like conditions the Israelites had God's direct revelation through the, the law to rule them and God's blessing with his presence among them. And he had brought his people into the land that he had promised them. But like Adam and Eve, they continued to doubt God's word. They continued to defy his law. And they continued to desire to live apart from his presence. And so like Adam and Eve, they were not satisfied with God's rule over them. And so they would need a greater sacrifice who could deal with their sins in a powerful way and give them new hearts, change them from the inside. 
on that terrifying night of Passover as these Egyptians are losing the firstborn in their families. This remarkable salvation that's provided here to the Hebrews, it foreshadowed this coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He was slain on Passover. His innocent blood saves all who believe from death and destruction. Christ's death, what it would do for us in this new covenant era is put an end to the repetition of sacrifices. It would fulfill the covenant given to Abraham and the covenant given through the law of Moses. But Jesus' blood was not that of bulls and goats. It was human blood. And it was faultless in every way. And so through Jesus' atoning blood, forgiveness from God would be available, become available to every man and woman and child who looked to him. So 3,500 years ago, the Israelites, the Hebrews, were delivered from the Egyptians by the blood of the Passover lamb. And in this day and age, we are delivered also from our guilt by the blood of the great and ultimate and perfect Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so the writer of Hebrews writes this in in, in our New Testaments, this letter to the Hebrews, <clears throat> you'll notice as you progress on that this is a, a Hebrews is, is a setup showing us how Jesus is ultimate. He is the redeemer of all people who will look to him in faith. And over and over and over again, we'll begin to see this language that Jesus is the better priest. He's the great high priest. And we'll also see this language that he is the once for all. Look for that language as you read Hebrews. He is the once for all sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27 say this. This is the kind of high priest that we need. We need one who is holy. We need one who is innocent. We need one who is undefiled. We need one who is separated from sinners. That means set apart, not sinful himself, and one who is exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people, but he did this once for all time when he offered up himself. And then progressing in Hebrews chapter 9, the writer says this, For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands. So he's not entered into buildings and temples or tabernacles, which are copies of the true things, but he's actually entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly over and over again as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. The writer of Hebrews argues that if that were the case, then Jesus would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that will come judgment. So Christ Jesus, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to rescue those who are eagerly waiting for him. So what we're seeing in this history, like I know there's a lot of history here, but I'm trying to connect the dots for you, church, that Jesus Christ, how he is this 
great and true and better sacrificial lamb, Passover lamb, that God provided and delivered the Israelites from the tyranny of Egypt. But God, through his son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate human sacrifice, he is is delivering you and I from and promising us deliverance from the tyranny of Satan and from the tyranny of death and from the tyranny of our sin. He is providing for his people powerfully as we continue to look to him, the one who was given on our behalf. That is our work, to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help. Every week it feels like I pray that, help. Uh, because I wander and I turn and I stray and I'm, I'm, I'm like the Israelites in the wilderness, just wandering. And I know that it's not very different for those others in the room this morning. And so we need you to turn our eyes to you. You've given us your spirit. Thank you. Your spirit turns us to see you and to look to you. And sometimes we go astray for hours and minutes and sometimes it's days and sometimes it's months and sometimes it's years, but you call your people. And so we give you thanks for calling your people back to faithfulness to you. Thank you for calling your people back to look to Jesus Christ as the once for all sacrifice for our sins. And even where it's really hard for us to believe that this could actually be true, you have promised it over and over and over again, and you've given us the scriptures preserved throughout the ages to testify to this reality. So it is not up to whether or not we feel like this is true. There is something objective in front of us, your word, the life of your son, his resurrection, that proves that this is true. And so we bless your name and we give you thanks this morning. Amen.